There is limited darkness here on our peninsula. One of the darkest spots I've found in my travels was just over the Florida border on a road trip back from Chicago. We had been traveling for hours along country roads. Traffic around Atlanta was so dense that we decided back routes might be a better option. We passed through town center after town center, a small roundabout with a pagoda or a statue and not a pedestrian in sight. We were finally on a major state road approaching Interstate 10 when we noticed how dark everything was. There were no streetlights and we hadn't seen any property of any kind in quite some time. We pulled the car off the road for just a moment and looked up. There above us in the quiet miles over the Florida border, we saw the Milky Way in glorious splendor, an impossible, indescribable thing. But we were still in darkness and creeping primal fear rushed us back into our car. We sped toward the comfortable glow of highway light. In the modern age, urban sprawl eats up the darkness even on our quietest, most isolated nights. The orange light that glows against the asphalt highways reflects towards the heavens and even in the dark night sky in suburban neighborhoods or rural corners, that amber radiance peaks over the edge of the trees burning up the available horizon and glaring against our eyes. It blocks out the celestial bodies that rage above. When I was in my sophomore year of college, I would regularly take a long walk from the theater on campus after rehearsal late at night back to my apartment a good 10 minutes away. There was very little darkness on the campus, but in a canyon between the tennis courts, if you happened to turn your eyes upward, you could see an unusual pocket of shadow, just enough to see a constellation or two. I would watch as, night after night, Orion's belt moved ever slowly from one end of the horizon to the other as our planet turned under my feet. When I moved out of that apartment, the first thing that made me sad about leaving was that walk, that pocket, those stars. Humanity has always had a devotion to the stars. We've been studying the heavens since prehistoric times, writing narratives and placing characters upon their shapes. When modern technology allowed us to cross the threshold into the sky, we took it and have returned constantly since. But not everyone is an astronaut or an astronomer, and sometimes you have to take yourself out to one of those hard-to-find dark corners and point a telescope at the sky and wait. Luckily for those interested, the state is covered with astronomical societies, organizations across the peninsula devoted to this exact interest. Events nearly constantly invite folks to quiet beaches, secluded islands, or deep forest clearings where telescopes peer upwards. Amateurs start to look like professionals, with star guides and lasers and maps, so one can catch a glimpse of a planet or a constellation or a galaxy. One very popular spot is the Chieflin Astronomy Village in the crook of the state of Florida west of Gainesville, only a few miles from the Suwannee River. It's far south of the actual city of Chiefland, an agricultural community in the heart of Levi County. For a small fee, you can set yourself up with equipment in the darkness and wait for night to fall and the stars to arrive. Many state and national parks in Florida offer stargazing opportunities. You can set up at Bahia Honda, where the ruins of Flagler's Railroad still stand, or head into the Kissimmee Prairie Preserve State Park, named as Florida's first dark sky park, meaning it is specifically designed for you to dig into the darkness and enjoy the celestial bodies above. In Kissimmee, you can actually see more than just the stars. Jupiter and Saturn are both visible in the prairie solitude. It's a special thing and requires you to take extra effort to remove yourself that much from civilization, but I'm sure once you're out there, it's magic. 
70 years ago, before the sprawl had taken away all that darkness, our wilderness was likely a much scarier place. I doubt anywhere in Florida is scarier in the darkness than the Everglades. And in 1952, a scoutmaster and his troop of kids took themselves into the darkness of our most southern wilderness. Within the brush, the darkness was the least of their concerns. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the Everglades UFO, the investigation that followed, and the things that wait in the swamp. My name is Denise Stoner, and I do a variety of things for MUFON. First of all, I'm the assistant state director for Florida MUFON. I spoke with Denise Stoner of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, one of the oldest UFO organizations in the world. She is a published author on the subject and an investigator with MUFON's Florida branch. And then I branch out and I am a special assistant to Kathleen Martin, who is the director of Experiencers Research Team, and that is international. Um, the ERT is a support to anyone and everyone that needs help as far as abductions go. Can you tell me a little bit about the incident, the, the incident in 1952? Sure. Um, he was driving home the three Boy Scouts from a meeting, uh, as far as we know, and saw a light. Um, off in the swampy area um, and decided that he was going to go and check it out. I don't know if he thought he was going to report on something, thought somebody was out there that shouldn't be. It was late summer in 1952, August 19th. A part-time scoutmaster named Dunham Sanborn Desvergers, Sonny to his friends, was taking a group of his Boy Scouts home. Along the brush wilderness, Desvergers saw a brilliant flash, and concerned that some lost soul was in danger, he pulled the car over and emerged to inspect whatever he had just seen. There were three boys in the car watching as the scoutmaster entered the woods. After some time, the boys contacted the local authorities who arrived, awaiting the return of the scoutmaster from the brush. When he finally emerged from the wilderness, he was semi-conscious, partially burned, and spewing what sounded like total nonsense. In a clearing in the wood, the scoutmaster had taken his machete and his flashlight into the depths and encountered a violent, massive, unidentified flying object. At the same time in South Florida, the cities at the edge of the Everglades were waging a war of land against the waters south of Lake Okeechobee. A new wave of early conservation had come to South Florida when Marjorie Stoneman Douglas aided in the Everglades National Park officially being certified as protected land. Despite the increased development of Miami and its northern urban neighbors, the water was still fighting back. In the summer of 1947, the same year the Everglades was established, South Florida was met with an unprecedented series of summer rainfalls. Not only did it soak the new post-war residents, but the waterways around these new cities were facing a major flooding problem. So much property had been developed for agricultural or residence purposes, and the rainfall rehydrated the wetlands and ripped apart the newly constructed land. According to Michael Grunwald's amazing book, The Swamp, people in South Florida suddenly came face to face with the fact that the Everglades may never remain fully safe for them to live near. 
At any point, the rain could return, and it could all be swept under yet again. If they were going to survive, the drainage of the Everglades, which had been going on for several decades, needed to be pushed further. Humanity had tamed the wild, but the wild fought back. Uncertainty now needed to be removed from the equation. The newly formed United States Air Force was motivated by the same concern. Last time we talked about UFOs in Florida, we were talking about the Gulf Breeze sightings and how the panic of the Cold War coincided with the rise of UFO sightings. The global standstill between the states and the Soviet Union led to the beginnings of several different projects, and one such project was called Project Blue Book. It was created in 1952, and one of their very first cases was that of Scoutmaster Sonny Desvergers and the lights he saw in the woods. There had been many other projects before Blue Book, but none were as clear-minded and focused in their intent. The goal was to determine if these UFO sightings that were sweeping the country were a threat to American life and to determine their origins from a scientific standpoint. Air Force investigators were sent out across the country to analyze reports of aerial phenomenon and sought to answer those two questions. What is it and is it a threat? Enter Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, then the chief investigator for Project Blue Book. And that man, he was awarded, what, several battle stars, some air medals, some flying crosses, um, all of those types of things. So he was well able to handle this type of thing, set it up, get it going. However, he was not pleased with the way his people handled investigations. They, they based what they discovered on a lot of their belief systems. His summer had already been a very strange one. In July, he was at the focal point of one of the most widely seen UFO events in American history called the Washington, D.C. Flap. For a period of two and a half weeks, flying saucers were seen on radar, by commercial planes in the air, and by actual passers-by below, moving over the Capitol, the Pentagon, and the White House. The story broke like wildfire and was the front-page headline nationwide of the potential threat over our nation's capital. When Air Force planes would make chase of these unidentified vehicles, the crafts would suddenly pick up to extreme speed and vanish. President Truman was deeply concerned for national security and called in loads of military support, including the investigators from Project Blue Book, which included Captain Ruppelt. The official declaration was that the sightings were nothing but a hoax, stars, meteors, errant planes. This did not appease the public concern, and most questions were left unanswered. Captain Ruppelt had spent much of this period trying to calm official panic and answer as many questions as he possibly could. But now, he was beleaguered and overwhelmed, and the Washington incident passed without any final conclusions. One month later, he was in Florida. It's his book that would come out four years later where the Everglades incident was first publicly known. He calls the event, quote, one of the weirdest UFO reports that I came up against, end quote. The following is how Scoutmaster Sonny Desvergers recounted his story to Captain Ruppelt. When they had stopped the car because of the flash, a 15-minute show on the radio was beginning. The Scoutmaster told the boys to wait for the show to end, and if he was not back by then, to call the police. 
The Scoutmaster had a machete as well as a pair of flashlights, and he used the North Star as a focal point to ensure he was moving strictly east. Though this area is now heavily developed, there were loads of shrubs along the highway, and Sonny struggled to get through. When he finally passed into a clearing, he was immediately struck by an odd smell, perhaps a burning scent, and an oppressive heat. As he peered to the sky in search of Florida's familiar stars, he was met instead by a dark object that blocked the sky directly above him. There must have been some kind of hovering object above him. He did notice that it was um, a dull black, that the object was circular, was about 30 feet in diameter, um, and that it was, let's see, a height of 10 feet, and there was a convex dome top of that, um, and then there was some kind of phosphorescent glow. All this time, the Boy Scouts back in the van had been watching the trees. To keep track of himself for the kids, Sonny had been flashing his light up at the sky so they could see where he was. After a few minutes, they saw him stop, and then suddenly, they saw a ball of red light which consumed Sonny Desvergers, and back in the clearing, he went unconscious. At first, it wasn't really a red mist. It was like a red, a red glow, a red light, and then it just surrounded him as a red mist. Um, that's what he described. Terrified and fearing for their scoutmaster's life, they rushed to a local house and called the police, who arrived just a few minutes later. The scoutmaster awoke shortly after and emerged onto the road, overwhelmed and spewing everything he had experienced. They immediately investigated the Scoutmaster and the site of the apparent UFO and discovered his abandoned flashlight, an imprint of Sonny's body in the grass, and scorch marks along his face and hat. The Air Force was immediately called, and Rupolt was in Florida within days. He interviewed the Scoutmaster several times, and his story checked out upon repeated telling. The captain believed, for the moment, that Desvergers was telling the truth. Laughter, health and happiness and life itself. And then, all of a sudden, death. As water shows its other face, hideous, unrelenting, shrieking its rage, the vicious scourge of mankind, burying life and land under its relentless and merciless depths. This is the story of such water, and its mastery by the determined hand of man. That is the beginning of a propaganda film made by the Army Corps of Engineers around this time called Waters of Destiny. According to Michael Grunwald, this documentary was part of the PR push from the Corps to justify their new plan to control the Everglades. Their goal was to create, quote, 2,000 miles of levees and canals along with hundreds of spillways, floodgates, and pumps so powerful they were cannibalized from nuclear submarines, end quote. The natural preservation was already set, with clear boundaries that would never be crossed. The goal was for everything else in relation to the wild swamp to be chopped and screwed in any way possible, even taking precedence over the safety and ecological security of the national park itself. Water was soon branded as the enemy, and rather than trusting that the ecosystem would naturally sort itself out with approval by the state legislature, the engineers dug their spades into the muck. Even Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the mother of the Everglades, saw this project as advantageous to the park's survival. Even a controlled flow of water into the park was better than none at all. 
Over the next several decades, they would strip away parts of the exterior elements of the Everglades, leaving the interior mysteries to the swamp to sort itself out. Whatever lies beyond the border of the wilderness was no longer their concern. The water was locked on the other side, and the clarity of civilization ruled instead. Any questions left unanswered didn't need to be. Captain Rupolt, on the other hand, needed to confirm a few things before he started settling in on a conclusion. Top of the order was Scoutmaster Desvergers' character. Rupolt spoke to those who knew him well, co-workers, friends, his scouts, and they all confirmed the same thing. Sonny was a good guy, not the type to lie. Though his burn marks could have been easily recreated using a small pocket lighter and burned away at his arm skin, there was no reason to suspect that's what he did. The locals living near the incident didn't see anything the night of, and no other reports of the kind were found that night. Rupolt needed to count on answers that only the site itself could provide, so Project Blue Book crept through the muck for an answer. The investigators searched through the woods for evidence of any other suspicious activity, a bootlegger camp or something, and found nothing. They searched for swamp gas, which is a commonly used excuse for UFO sightings, and found nothing. They did extensive tests of the machete that was used and used a radioactive detector to scan, and all told, they found nothing. On the baseball cap Sonny had worn, which had apparently received minor burns, they started to suspect that the burns were fabricated. Even those around Sonny started turning on him, revealing that though he was a nice and honest man, he was prone to spinning a tail or two in his time. But in a gap between two hurricanes, with all this testing going on, Captain Rupold returned to the clearing. What he found was remarkable. The grass where the scoutmaster had seen the craft was burned, singed to a degree that was similar to the marks Sonny had himself sustained. They would rip grass from the ground beneath their feet, down to the roots buried deep in the soil. They sent these roots to a lab and found something inexplicable. The grass had been burned down to the roots below the surface. So let's say the burns on Sunny had been fake, the story had been fabricated, and all evidence pointed to this being a hoax. The grass itself was the gap in the story. There's something wrong there. Um, he could not have done that on his own. Another thing that they neglected to look at, or they just didn't comment, if the roots were scorched, we know this is sandy soil, they would have noticed um, a high melt factor of the sand. They would have seen that some of that sand would have glommed together and turned into something close to glass. And they didn't mention that, and they knew that back then. When we're researching soil samples, a possibility of a UFO coming that close to the ground, we're not only going to look at foliage um, and damaged areas and places where the foliage will not regrow, there won't be regrowth, but we're going to look at that sand and it will melt. So did they do that? I don't know. We don't know that. An analyst named Jeffrey Wilson was interviewed by History.com for his expertise on what is called global circle phenomena, like crop circles. He told History that this grass evidence is unprecedented. No other example of suddenly charred roots have ever been recorded anywhere else. Whether Scoutmaster Sonny is telling the truth becomes irrelevant. Something happened out there in the swamp, and to this day, no one knows what it was. I would have asked this man 
some more questions and made them public. I would have checked with that ranch house just up the street that the boys were told to go and get help from. What have they seen? There's so much more missing from this investigation. Where did they hide it or did they just not bother? Um, I really can't draw conclusions. I think something was seen. Something caused that odor. Something unusual, I believe. Um, so I would lean more towards something happened to that man and we're never going to have the answer because he's gone. Nevertheless, Project Blue Book closed the door on the case, labeled it a hoax, and moved on to the next indescribable mystery. In a way, the Army Corps of Engineers succeeded in their cause, though at a price. When the water was drained and relocated from parts of the Everglades, they found that fires were more rampant, and what natural flow had been created from the Kissimmee River Basin and the southern tip of the state had been permanently altered. Many restoration projects have been attempted since, but you can't put the cork back in. In the midst of it all, of drainage and destruction, a scoutmaster and a skeptic accidentally found that the Everglades was not a fully known beast yet, and possibly never could be. Sure, you could dredge up the land, build canals, place a suburb on top, but that didn't uncover the whole truth. Somewhere in the swamp, there is darkness still, where the stars are not marred by humanity's glow. When you cast your eyes upward in search of the North Star, it may not be there. In the sky above, you may just find more darkness. so much for listening to this episode of wait five minutes i'm so glad that you are here if you're brand new to the show or even if this is your first episode welcome there are some really amazing stories waiting for you if you're looking for a good place to jump in and you liked this episode you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning might i recommend my other two ufo episodes the gulf breeze sightings from last spring and lights over ocala from last august if you love this story you'll love those as well if you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it brightens my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I also am on Twitter at WFMNick if you want to speak to me. I look forward to hearing from you. If you would like to read more about Project Blue Book and the Everglades incident, I've included links to my sources from this story below, along with a link to Michael Grunwald's amazing book, The Swamp. I would also like to thank Denise Stoner. You can pick up a copy of her book below. There are also many, many ways that you can support your local Florida community during this crisis. I've included some links at the top of the description so you can support those around you. They need you now more than ever. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo. 
All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music below as well. Next week is the season three finale. It's going to be a very special episode, one I've been working on for a very long time. You are going to love it. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and if you can, please stay home. Have a good week. <laughs>